Uh, I am Jeremy Howard. I'm the pastor here at Payson Bible Church, and I am joined by Jackson Washburn to have some dialogue. This will be something that's like halfway between a cross-examination and a debate and a lunch with a friend. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's kind of what we're going for. It just sounds like a good conversation to me, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good conversation. That's it. Uh, with, with structure, a little more structure. Right, right. So, uh, Jackson, you want to give an introduction of yourself, uh, however you want to explain your bio? Yeah, sure. Um, like Jeremy said, uh, my name is Jackson Washburn. Um, I reside in Arizona. Right now I'm, I'm in Idaho. Um, for quarantine, but um, I'm a student at Arizona State University. Um, I'm majoring in religious studies and history. Uh, I'm also a Latter-day Saint, a lifelong member. Um, when I was 12 years old, I had a mother who converted out of Mormonism into evangelical Christianity. And so through my teenage years, I was able to spend time uh, with both faith traditions and uh, engaging both faith communities. And um, it was, you know, during that time, uh, after several years of attending both churches that I, I started feeling more uh, personally comfortable um, identifying as a Latter-day Saint. Um, but uh, since then, I've taken a, a big interest in religious studies and talking to people of different religious faiths and having dialogues such as these um, and still considering the claims of uh, uh, traditional Christianity um, engaging apologetic literature and, um, you know, just trying to sustain friendship, um, across the aisle. So, um, yeah. And yeah. could you list off your classes for this semester? Cause I, I see oh. the stuff you post on social media and it's like, man, those, those classes sound like fun. Oh, um, well this semester, um, I'm taking historical perspectives in philosophy and religion. Um, I'm taking a seminar class on ritual. Uh, that's three hours on Mondays. It, I like talking about religion, but that class is a lot. Uh, I got to be honest. Hmm. Um, I'm taking uh, right now. I'm I just started a an online class on uh, evolution and uh, evolutionary theory, um, which is interesting. Um, let me uh, Jewish history from antiquity. Um, let's see. I feel it. Like I'm TA for. Uh, I think I'm doing like 19 right now. Wow. Um, I also just started a uh, position as a grader uh, for a Hebrew Bible class. Um, last semester, I was a bit more heavy on, I, I took a New Testament class and a Hebrew Bible class. And uh, um, this upcoming semester, I should be taking like formation of the Christian tradition. So, you know, I do have an interest in not just like religion or religious history, but, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and things that are directly um, relevant and, uh, um, you know, kind of key to understanding the Bible and biblical history as well. Um, I, I personally want to specialize in our Armenian religious history, um, as in the country, not Armenianism. <laughs> uh, um, that was a joke. I, I served my mission in Armenia and, uh, um, I, I think, you know, there'd only be like two individuals that would understand my joke when I'd say, you know, we're teaching Armenian Armenians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I want to specialize in uh, Armenian religious history uh, while still, you know, uh, con you know, in kind of that, that would require me to do kind of studies in Christianity and the New Testament, early Christianity. Um, I also want to do Mormon studies on the side. So 
Um, yeah, that's that's a quick introduction to me and and uh, my different interests. I'm set to graduate in spring of next year, um, so I'm uh, going to be applying for uh, grad school pretty soon. Okay, cool. Um, has the quarantine made life easier or harder as a student? Oh, um, I'd say easier, actually. Um, mm-hmm. my, my social life has remained the same, sadly, but uh, <laughs> uh, predominant, you know, dominated by online discussions. But uh, I, um, I don't know, now I don't have to show up for physical class. And it, you know, it feels like I have a lot more free time. So I'm just trying to stay productive. That's why I took on that position as a grader as well to try to make gotcha. a bit of money. Um, and it's been nice uh, since quarantine. Uh, the, the ways that I have, you know, uh, made made money on the side as a student are all online. And so I haven't had any issues, um, you know, with losing sources of income because of that. Mm-hmm. Good. Cool. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm, uh, like I said, Jeremy Howard and the pastor here at Payson Bible Church. I have lived in Utah since May of 14. So almost six years. My wife and I are from the great state of Missouri and we've got three children that keep us busy, and uh, it's a pleasure to be in full-time ministry, though these are challenging days, uh, but but uh, thankful for technology to be able to do stuff like this. So, um, And like I mentioned at the beginning, too, we uh, are wanting to have some spiritual conversation about things from an LDS perspective and from an evangelical perspective, and what we've done is uh, for this episode or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Jackson has sent me three questions that have to deal with the nature of God across the Testaments, the Old and New Testament. And uh, for the next one, I'm going to ask Jackson three questions and we're going to walk through those. And hopefully there's enough interest and conversation from the first two videos that there will be some questions and things in the comments on Facebook and YouTube that we can take and answer for a third uh, edition of this. And uh, we've talked about this for a while. We were planning on doing it later in the year, but alas, we are all inside and we might as well do it now. So uh, here here we are. Um, So the goal is to go for an hour, a little less and walk through these questions. Again, Jackson did send these to me ahead of time. So don't think I'm thinking of all this stuff off the top of my head. I couldn't do that. So I do have some uh, written down stuff. If you see me looking at a weird place, that's what I'm doing. And uh, we'll just kind of walk through these questions. He'll, he'll ask this question. I will give my response and then we'll just dialogue about it before moving on to the next question. So you ready? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, is it okay if I preface uh, my questions a bit as well? Yeah. yeah. All right. No, so, no rules. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, with these questions in mind, um, you know, I, I, some of them lean more towards, um, I, I, I guess, having a bit more of an academic edge to them, let's say, uh, where it's not uh, um, uh, strictly uh, theological, uh, although, you know, um, I, I, think, I think they do go both ways. Um, but uh, my, my first question is, uh, you know, Jeremy, what do you make of recent biblical scholarship as an evangelical um, that's, you know, produced by various Jewish, Christian, secular, or, you know, scholars of different worldviews uh, who have argued that ethical monotheism, um, which I guess we can define as uh, there, you know, existing only one ontologically unique being uh, that we refer to as God, 
um, that uh, ethical monotheism did not actually enter the biblical tradition uh, until the text of like, let's say Isaiah, uh, technically Deutero Isaiah, but you know, around the time of the exile, right? Uh, that essentially that there is this development in Israelite religion where, you know, it eventually developed into a rudimentary form of monotheism. But before that uh, might've been, uh, you know, henotheistic elements of polytheism or um, the technical term to this uh, would, you know, be affirming the religion of ancient Israel as many times being uh, monolatrous, uh, monolatry as being espoused by, you know, both the ancient Israelites themselves and reflected in different biblical texts. So um, we can, we can define monolatry um, as, you know, the, the belief that there is one kind of supreme God, uh, but that there's other divine beings uh, also referred to as gods. Um, sometimes they're known by other names, but essentially um, that there's this hierarchy where there is one, you know, supreme God uh, who has authority over these lesser deities, these lesser gods, um, but that it's not as strict monotheism. Uh, other, the, the existence of other divine beings is also uh, affirmed, and uh, the supreme god has jurisdiction over them. So is that something that you would, uh, you know, deny in the biblical text as being real? Do you affirm it yourself? Do you um, recognize it in the Bible, but not personally espouse it yourself? Um, I, I'd be interested in, you know, kind of what you have to say about monolatry and uh, the religion of ancient Israel. Yeah, so by way of clarification on monolatry, um, how would you distinguish that from henotheism? Yeah, uh, and a lot of these terms are fluid, right, um, mm -hmm. uh, to an extent. So, um, you know, he henotheism, from what I've seen, uh, is generally defined as, you know, not denying the existence of other gods, uh, but um, isolating one's worship to only one of those gods. And monolatry refers to something a bit more specific, where there is one god um, that reigns supreme over the other gods, uh, but those other gods also still exist. Um, so it's it's kind of just a more technical way of stating exactly what kind of like henotheism uh, we have in mind. And would you say, sorry, another clarification question. Yeah, would, totally would you fine. say in that, that view of monolatry that you just described, those, those other gods, were they created by the one supreme god? Yes. Um, in, in most cases, uh, I, I, I would say so. Um, with, with henotheism as like a general uh, term, uh, those other gods don't always need to be uh, created by another god. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, it, in monolatry, I would say that, you know, that, that singular god is responsible, um, at least in the religion of ancient Israel, um, that that god is responsible for the creation of, of other entities as well. Okay, gotcha. So, um, yeah, by way of disclaimer, I don't spend a lot of time reading and analyzing scholarship that is um, that views the Old Testament that way. You know, by way mm -hmm. of my yeah. profession and what my ministry is, and just in life that I've got three kids, and you know, uh, very being very busy. I'm not a full time um, student anymore, and so. I don't stay up to date on a lot of that scholarship yeah. just as a disclaimer. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, the way I view it is that monotheism is part and parcel to the theology of Moses, 
that he developed through personal interaction with God and from divine revelation that God gave him as he wrote scripture. So that monotheism is just like fundamental. It's, it's bedrock in Moses's theology as developed through the Pentateuch. And then that mm-hmm. is fundamental to the rest of uh, Old Testament theology that's developed from there. Mm-hmm. And, and if we look at the life of Moses and the revelation he received concerning creation and, and other things, we see a singular God from the beginning. In, in Genesis, we look at the verbs that are being used there in Hebrew, and they're singular verbs in reference to mm-hmm. this God who also spoke of himself. God spoke of himself as being singular, though he did speak of himself as being uh, plural at times, too. Um, we see Moses describing uh, God, experiencing God as being formless. You look at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord speaking out of the burning bush, uh, the Mount Sinai event where the Ten Commandments are given and all of Israel is there and they can hear, but they see no form. They were with God face to face, it says in scripture, but they saw no form. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a formless aspect there, though I'm sure we'll get into uh, the formed aspects there too. Yeah. Uh, they're this singular formless God is glorious. Uh, Moses spends time with them, comes down off the mountain, his face is glowing. And so there's mm-hmm. a glory uh, aspect there. And what's, you know, important as we summarize all this and, and see all this revelation and experience that Moses has uh, from God, we end up understanding that Yahweh, the God of Israel is fundamentally different than every other God. So, you get this repeated over and over again, starting in the first five books of the Bible and all the way through uh, the prophets and poetry and all of that, that the God of Israel could see, he could hear, he could interact. Uh, The God of Israel can create. He has the power to create things. The God of Israel covenants with people, all of these things that no other gods do. And these other gods, small G gods are sometimes Mm -hmm. referred to as just, you know, something like this microphone, just like a mm-hmm. inanimate object that can't do anything. And at other times you see those gods referred to as demons. Like there's a spiritual aspect there, though they are not eternal in and of themselves, though they do not have the same power and authority as God, they are spiritual in nature and they influence humans. And so in that way, uh, they are, they are gods in that they are spiritual influencers that people worship wrongly. And so they Mm -hmm. can be called, you know, small G gods. And as we, as we see a lot of this, not all of it, but a lot of it in the Torah, it just gets developed um, from there. It's foundational to the theology of the subsequent generations within Israel. Um, Abraham, for instance, you know, this, he lived of course before Moses, but the example that we see in Abraham's life was that he was called out of a polytheistic religion. Mm -hmm. He was called out of a polytheistic context and he was, you know, united to the God of Israel, the one true God. And as the one true God spoke to him, uh, he made covenant with him and he stayed with him and his progeny. So you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and on and on it goes. Um, And, and that's the foundation for all of old Testament theology. And those who posit the theory of polytheism in that Old Testament theology, uh, they don't typically start with the idea that the biblical text is authoritative and sufficient. Usually Mm -hmm. when people, 
come to that conclusion is because they started in a totally different place than someone like mm-hmm. me would start. And so yeah. as someone who, who seeks to believe that, um, you know, the, the Bible is, I don't, I, looks like I missed type there. I shouldn't be reading my notes word for word. I should <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. see the principle and then state it. Um, as someone who believes that the Bible is the only authoritative text, the only God breathed text, I, I hold to monotheism and would reject mm-hmm. uh, polytheism, henotheism, and monolatry. Uh, the monolatry you were describing sounds very similar to Michael Heiser's uh, yeah. worldview, um, largely based on Psalm 82, though there are some uh, two or three Torah references that uh, he turns to also. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would disagree with Michael Heiser's view of Psalm 82, and I would disagree with. Uh, you know, it definitely his theological conclusions. I think his monolatry is dangerous in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would definitely outright reject that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think from that, um, I appreciate that you, uh, stated, you know, kind of what theological commitments or, you know, uh, presuppositions are informing how you approach this subject. Right. Yep. Um, I, I think, um, and, and you articulated it yourself, but I, I think another way of putting it, um, there seems to be this key question here of, you know, do we treat the Bible at like any other book or any other historical text, or does it have, you know, other claims of authority that, you know, puts it on a higher pedestal than those texts uh, where, you know, we have to start with different assumptions, right? Um, so, um, you, you referenced, uh, some, uh, Michael Heiser, he, he is, uh, you know, one of the leading proponents, uh, of this, I, I, or, or one of the most vocal, I think, Christians, uh, who, you know, espouse this view. Um, but, uh, for him and, and other Christians that, you know, recognize and, and argue for monolatry in the Hebrew Bible, um, it doesn't seem to, uh, at least from their own perspective, um, invalidate or prevent them from identifying as believing Christians uh, with commitments to the New Testament as well. Um, So um, you said yourself uh, that you believe that monolatry or, you know, recognizing it or or arguing for it, um, there's some danger to it. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you mind kind of articulating some of the some of the dangers that you see? Um, or, you know, like what are, uh, beyond, beyond, uh, not believing, uh, that the Bible is sufficient or that it is, you know, fully authoritative in the same way that you would view it. Uh, what are some other ways in which it, um, might complicate or, you know, prove to be problematic to some of the truth claims that you consider to be integral, right? Sure. Um, so to me, the primary danger, I, I believe there are multiple dangers, but the one that's primary is that the, a category has been made by mm-hmm. Michael Heiser and others who hold that position that isn't uh, founded in scripture. And so mm-hmm. um, the, the primary danger is the re- a rejection of, um, of sola scriptura because mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to be <laughs> derived. I know he, he references Psalm 82 and in, in a couple other passages a lot, but it doesn't seem to be driven by a sola scriptura wor- worldview. It comes from a more theological or philosophical worldview and scripture, you know, happens to, to aid it in a couple of spots. And so 
um, that category being invented and inserted that there's God and there are angels. And then like in between you have this, uh, these gods that exist who are higher than angels or have different roles and authorities than their authority than angels, but they aren't God. And that God needs their counsel as he Mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't say needs, but God um, relies on chooses to rely on however he wants to say that their counsel to, to operate. Um, that's a, it's a man-made doctrine. It's not a, a biblically founded doctrine. And that's why um, primarily I say that it's dangerous, but some other more perhaps fringe purposes would be uh, the idea that God does not rule the uh, universe by his own counsel alone goes <laughs> against uh, various passages and uh also has some really dangerous implications, <laughs> um, depending on how far it's taken. I mean, I- any doctrine or theology taken to a, its human logical conclusion can be dangerous. And so um, that can kind of lead in that direction. Um, also, the idea that someone like Michael Heiser makes an entire ministry out of this one doctrine, that it's like a, mm-hmm. it's a worldview paradigm, really, more than mm-hmm. it is just a doctrine. Uh, is dangerous. And that shows too, from his own doing, it shows that there are some major differences here, even though he calls himself a Christian and I call myself a Christian, mm-hmm. it's like a different worldview. And, uh, mm-hmm. and anytime someone makes that big of a deal out of a singular doctrine, it shows that uh, either mm-hmm. the doctrine is a really big deal or that person's view of doctrine is imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so those, those are sef- definitely some, some theological implications um, that, uh, uh, you know, espousing a view of monolatry has, at least for, for Christians, let's say. Um, but, you know, shifting to considering this through more of an academic lens, um, it, it seems like this, this theory or, or this, this way of understanding uh, the Bible um, can be held uh, by and is held and argued by, you know, uh, non-believing individuals, uh, uh, Jews, uh, you know, various Jews, various, you know, self-identifying Christians. Um, and, and so uh, to me, at least, um, it, it seems like there seems, uh, this is an issue where if we aren't addressing it theologically, then from a historical standpoint, um, there seems to be uh, a consensus which can transcend personal theological worldviews. Um, you, I, think, I think you made a, um, an important point uh, by recognizing that um, this is something which uh, presupposes uh, that the Bible is not self-sufficient um, and that, you know, various parts of it uh, need to be uh, perhaps primarily interpreted through the lens of history or through the lens of uh, the existing cultures in the ancient Near East. Um, And uh, that the text itself, uh, that there are varying inconsistent theological worldviews represented in the text, right? Um, So I think with that, uh, what do you believe is the appropriate um, way for a believer or uh, let's just say an individual uh, to use history to inform their understanding of scripture, um, but not in a way that, uh, um, uh, you know, I guess jeopardizes its theological authority. 
or gotcha. internal consistency, right? So like, yeah. um, right. Be, uh, so for me, like, I, I, I agree that while there are passages in the Bible that individuals such as Michael Heiser or, or other scholars um, turn to, to sh- show this is where we can see the divine counsel or monolatry or, you know, uh, different takes on uh, Israelite theology. Um, a lot of it is very much informed through the lens of the ancient Near East by turning to other cultures that are not Israelite or turning to uh, Israelite um, like historical text or, or evidence uh, that, you know, from um, a traditional Christian, an evangelical, let's say, um, you might be able to say, you know, that that was apostate or, you know, there's many instances uh-huh. in the in the Hebrew Bible where different forms of idolatry or, you know, heresy are condemned, right? And so, you know, if there are legitimate archaeological instances of Israelites uh, affirming the existence of other gods, well, you know, the the text of of scripture condemns that, right? So um, in this case, how would you consider history to, you know, how might you appropriately use it to both inform your view of scripture, uh, but not in such a way that jeopardizes it. Right. So, uh, you know, from a CNN's perspective, uh, mm-hmm. starting in a place that you probably didn't think I would start, uh, from Wolf Blitzer's perspective, evangelicals are, uh, you know, just this big group, right? Yeah. Yet, uh, as you know, and I know within that group, there's a huge spectrum and diversity, um, that we're not just like a voting block, but there's right. like a, a bunch of difference. And, and when you start looking at the difference between, say, a through and through reformed evangelical yeah. and someone who is more of a congregationalist, like, uh, uh, I don't know, non-denominational type mm-hmm. of, yeah. of Christian, they would have very different views on the confessions and creeds from yeah. history. Now, that being said, Protestantism... Um, Protestantism is largely affected all the way across the board because of the early ecumenical councils and because of the works of um, the reformers. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, And no one can get away from that. So no matter how congregationalist, non-denominational you are, you can't say, well, it's just the Bible. I'm not affected by anything else. They are absolutely affected by the council of Nicaea. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and no matter how much they would try to deny that perhaps. So that being said, finding that balance is really tough, and there's a range within evangelicalism of, of what people believe and think. And we're all kind of evolving on this until we die. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've, I think I've evolved a little bit on this. I do not believe the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Nicene, uh, Nicene Creed, or um, the Council of Chalcedon, or any of those are on the same level of Scripture at all. Yeah. Yeah. But I do believe that God uses his people to teach his people. He, he sets apart teachers who are able to summarize things and help us and, in a sense, give us some guardrails under the authority of Scripture. So um, when applying that view, that's a really general view, but when applying that to this topic, um, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Michael Heiser is anathema, <laughs> or mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say necessarily that he's heretical, but I think he is really, really flirting with some doctrines that fall outside of the camp of historical Christianity and that 
by nature, there is danger in that just because God does use his people to teach his people and set up uh, some guardrails. Mm-hmm. So really general answer, but you want to maybe tack on another question now that I've said yeah, that? Yeah, well, well, like, do you think that uh, the, the issue in approach here is that uh, one needs to uh, essentially adopt a non-Christian methodology or, you know, kind of a secular approach to scripture in order to uh, reach this conclusion and, and, you know, even reconcile it within a, uh, an identified, self-identified Christian framework. Yeah, I don't um, know like, if I would is, say is it that. the methodology that's the that's the issue here? Um, a, a little bit. I mean, so the thing is, I mean, obviously, Psalm eighty-two talks about something that's interesting there, and that's mm-hmm. a tough passage. No matter who, no matter yeah. what perspective you take, you got to wrestle yeah. with it. And even yeah, from Michael Heiser's view, there's stuff in there that doesn't exactly line up with his interpretation. And same with me, you kind of got to wrestle with that and figure out what the answer is. I, mm-hmm. To me, the biggest problem, and this is a methodological issue or a process issue. The biggest problem is taking something that is kind of vague like that and not all over Mm -hmm. scripture. I mean, by any Mm -hmm. means and really elevating it to something that is worldview defining like it is for him. That's the Mm -hmm. real, real issue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and to me that does come from a place that falls outside of, outside of scripture. You don't see any, anybody in the new Testament teaching this. They knew their old Testament. All the new Testament writers knew their old Testament and they weren't teaching this, that Michael Heiser's mm-hmm. teaching. So mm-hmm. um, that's an important thing. Right. And, and I think the kind of the general argument with uh, the proponents of Israelite monolatry is that it was something that was, you know, uh, present in earlier biblical texts, but was eventually uh, replaced or, uh, suppressed by later, uh, more dominant uh, texts, which uh, adopted a more exclusive uh, monotheism. And so by the time of the New Testament, uh, I think arguably, uh, they might say, yes, you know, we, we would expect it to not be as present here, mm-hmm. uh, because we're arguing that this is uh, the, the case only in, uh, you know, predominantly earlier uh, Israelite texts. And that's, um, and that's goes right to those pre-commitments of, yeah. if you're taking that view, you're starting from the position of God was either unable or unwilling to preserve his revelation. And mm-hmm. when you start there, you're just going to end up in a different place every time than where someone like me would end up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I think that's all the questions that I have specifically for monolatry uh, for now. Uh, we might, we might circle back. Um, uh, but, uh, moving on to the, to the second question. I love um, this question. This is a great yeah. question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so you would identify as a Trinitarian Christian, uh, you would affirm the, the Trinity and Orthodox view of the Trinity, um, and small O Orthodox, I should mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so do you believe that if you spoke with the historical Abraham, Moses, David, or other biblical persons, this is kind of just, a uh, a, maybe a more fun hypothetical question, but mm-hmm. if you spoke with other biblical persons or authors of scriptural texts in the Hebrew Bible, um, do you think that they would, you know, uh, essentially share your same theological worldview? Uh, do you believe that ancient Jews would generally accept the teaching of the Trinity and the Hebrew Bible alone? Uh, or does one require a familiarity with the New Testament uh, and its text to accurately understand and find the Trinity in previous scripture? Um, so, you know, essentially as a Trinitarian, um, do you, A, uh, 
see the Trinity in the, the Hebrew Bible? And B, uh, is the Trinity something uh, that is um, uh, I, I guess, can it be expressed through the Hebrew Bible alone? Is it something that we can just deduce through those scriptural texts or does it require the lens of the New Testament? And, you know, is there a Christological uh, implication there as well? Sure. Um, could you perhaps put a little more meat on the term theological worldview? Kind of dress that out a little bit more. When, when um, you ask, would okay. uh, Abraham, Moses, David agree with my theological yeah. worldview? Yeah. So I guess, um, I and I don't mean um, explicitly like we're, you know, was Abraham and Moses a, you know, Protestant reformed evangelical Christian, <laughs> right? I think we would okay, both good. agree that they weren't, right? Yeah. Um, but I, th I think fundamentally, um, what do you think if you had a conversation with them uh, that they would find your theology at least compatible with theirs, right? Um, and I, I'll use the example of uh, traditional Christianity and Mormonism uh, as, as an instance of, you know, two theo theological worldviews that I think we would both agree with their uh, views of who God is and how, you know, humanity re relates to God uh, are incompatible with each other. Mm -hmm. um, they ontologically define God differently. And, you know, I don't think that uh, there, there could be a one-to-one -one equivalence or any kind of reconciliation there without, you know, uh, jettisoning one or the other, right? right. But I, I, I guess uh, fundamentally, um, do, you, do you think, you know, these biblical authors or, or ancient Israelites would um, uh, see the God that you worship as ontologically, you know, different and incompatible with the one that they worship? Or, you know, would there be a degree of compatibility there? Gotcha. Yeah, so um, just in short, to answer the question, just to kind of um, show my hand as to where I'm starting from. Yeah. They would, Abraham, Moses, David, those guys find my theology compatible with theirs. Uh, yes. And mm -hmm. now here's a really long answer. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, that's fine. Uh, so at the core of all this is the idea of progressive revelation, uh, the mm -hmm. idea that God didn't reveal the whole Bible in one shot. He didn't reveal everything in one shot, but yeah. through the course of time, revelation took place. Revelation is just by nature, it is absolutely um, in submission to time. It doesn't mm -hmm. exist outside of time in the human experience because humans exist mm -hmm. within inside of time. Um, so Christians today on this side of the completed canon, we have to you know, recognize as Christians that, we know more about God and man than mm -hmm. man did 4,000 years ago Yeah, by nature of progressive revelation. Yet at the same time, God's revelation to man has always been sufficient for life and for godliness, though mm -hmm. the level of knowledge has been different. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, it's a really fun conversation to have. Um, and uh, it's something not a lot of Christians have thought through, but the, his revelation has always been sufficient, though the level of knowledge has not always been the same. And so, for instance, I, I want to read, a, there are a few different passages I want to read just to kind of point to where I get my theology on this. And uh, one of them is from Eph Ephesians 3, and I'm just going to read the first seven verses here yeah. as Paul explains this very thought. 
He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So that aspect of uh, this is in verse five, other generations didn't know, uh, but now, at this time, God has used holy apostles and prophets, Paul is saying, um, to declare something that they didn't know. And, mm -hmm. and that is, uh, you know, essential to this whole conversation. Uh, another one is in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Uh, Peter said, as to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So, on the one hand, Peter is saying everyone who wrote inspired scripture had the spirit of Christ in them, which mm -hmm. is an interesting phrasing. It's only the, the uh, it's one of two times in the New Testament where spirit of Christ is used. And they were able to understand that Christ was coming. And yet they also understood through revelation that they were not serving themselves because they would have no experiential knowledge of this Christ who is coming Instead, they were serving those in the future who would experience more and in turn know more through the incarnation of Christ. So um, kind of all that I just wanted to lay out there is just the, the basis for what I'm about to say next. That's, that's half of my answer, so I don't have like 10 more minutes, so don't worry. Uh, but uh, as we apply this idea to the doctrine of the Trinity, the big idea for me is that in the Old Testament, the Trinity is implied. And in the New Testament, the Trinity is explicitly taught. There's an implication mm -hmm. versus uh, explicitly taught aspect going on as uh, we see references to uh, mystery in the New Testament that the Trinity would, you know, in, in, large, in a large part kind of fall into that category. Um, I think of Paul's, what Paul wrote at the very end of Romans, he says, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. That's how he ended that letter. And I see mm -hmm. in that an aspect of um, the fullness of truth was hidden, but now has been revealed through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And mm -hmm. so in the, in the New Testament, we see that uh, the incarnation is interpreted as God in flesh, though God did not cease 
to exist in heaven and God did not cease to exist as his spirit, um, that there were three persons who all had full deity and yet there was only one God that's very clearly uh, stated in the new Testament. But if we think back to the old Testament and out of the three guys you listed, we'll just pick Abraham because he's the farthest back mm-hmm. and yeah. he, didn't ha- he didn't have the writings of Moses or anything. Yeah. Um, if we think about the things that Abraham knew and experienced, I think this really helps us to kind of lock down the old Testament theology of the Trinity. Uh, Abraham knew that there was one true God. He was called by the one true God. Mm-hmm. Abraham knew that this one true God was going to bless the nations through his lineage that he made a covenant. Abraham then later in the story in Genesis 14 met Melchizedek and mm-hmm. he bowed down and paid tithes to Melchizedek, uh, the King of Salem, which some believe Salem is Jerusalem, but, mm-hmm. uh, before. And so, okay. He bowed down and paid tithes to him. That's, you know, pretty interesting. Some that leads many scholars to think that's a pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar and the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham directly in uh, Genesis 22. When Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, it was the angel of the Lord who called out to Abraham, the same angel of the Lord who called Moses from the burning bush. There were three men who appeared in Genesis 18. They appeared at Abraham's tent and it says that the Lord appeared to him. So it's likely that, again, you had the Lord and possibly two angels or something, all appearing as men there um, with, with Abraham. And it would be, you know, foolish to suppose that the Holy Spirit wasn't interacting in his life. We don't have a verse that explicitly says that, but I think it would, mm-hmm. we would err on the side of foolishness if we said that uh, the Holy Spirit didn't interact with Abraham. And so the doctrine begins in Genesis, even from Genesis 1, builds through the life of Abraham as more and more is revealed. You start looking at these instances, experiences, inspired teachings, and you start seeing it more and more. Um, and then you get to the New Testament and you have monotheistic Jews Peter, Paul, John, James, the brother of Jesus, and they're all thoroughly Jewish, and they all taught God's singularity and his plurality. Uh, those aspects are there, and um, and so that's kind of how I see that as far as did they understand it the same way we understood or understand it now as a doctrine? No, but do we see it implied? Yes, and I would just tack on as a final note. Um, I don't believe that you have to be able to articulate the Trinity to be able to articulate the gospel. I don't believe mm-hmm. the doctrine of the Trinity is part of the gospel message. However, mm-hmm. if a person comes to reject the doctrine of the Trinity, I don't believe that person can say that he's a Christian. I, I think if you mm-hmm. reject the Trinity, you're rejecting Christianity. So mm-hmm. there's my long answer. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, um, if if someone asks you, do you believe that Abraham was a Trinitarian? How would how would you answer that question? I would ask in what sense? In the Nicene sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, so go ahead. Uh, that's what I would well, ask. Yeah. You, I guess. Yeah. I, I think I think it'd be clear from a from a creedal or historical sense. The answer would probably be no. Right. Uh, yeah. That you know he was not a Nicene Trinitarian. Right. Would you say then that Abraham was? Uh, unconsciously a trinitarian or or had a you know i I think you would affirm that he had a concept of god's plurality and Mm -hmm. singularity Mm -hmm. um 
but uh so yeah uh would that make him like a soft trinitarian or or should you know is that language perhaps too uh not useful in this context yeah i mean on the one hand i would say it's not super useful because we're speculating <laughs> yeah right <laughs> we could do that all day long um yeah but on the other hand i mean there are some indications and this isn't with abraham directly but that instance with hagar Mm-hmm. So it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar. This is Genesis 16. And the angel of the Lord tells her, I'm going to multiply your descendants. That's verse 10 uh, goes on to say, you know, have a little poem that the angel of the Lord says to her. And then it says in verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord Yahweh who spoke mm-hmm. to her. You are a God who sees. And yet the instances before that was angel of the Lord. And that's mm-hmm. distinguished from, the Lord, yet at the same time, the angel of the Lord is the same as the Lord. I believe the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some indication right there in that story that they're grasping something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and we have to give all the credit that to God that apparently his spirit was doing something in them to help them understand. Uh, like when those three men showed up uh, at Abraham's mm-hmm. tent, I believe that he did believe that the Lord was there. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a ton of detail. We wish we did, but we know at least that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, historically as well, um, and, and I think back to, uh, in particular, the early centuries of, uh, of Christianity or, or throughout Christian history, um, it seems like, you know, there's been various uh, Jewish or Muslim commentators who, in reflecting upon the Trinity, uh, have considered it a violation of monotheism, uh, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, referring to it as, as just, you know, polytheism or, you know, uh, saying that there's semantics at play. Um, you know, I, I don't think we need to get into the specific arguments and, and the apologetics back and forth there. But um, what, what might you say to, you know, uh, a contemporary Jew who you know, by, by your own admission, right, uh, it, it's your view that the Old Testament implies the Trinity, but doesn't explicitly teach it, and it's the New Testament that explicitly teaches the Trinity, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the so, incarnation is kind of the hinge yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems like, you know, Christology is, you know, the key here, right? Um, and so, you know, how, how might you respond to a contemporary Jew uh, that might, you know, con- might uh, take issue or accuse you of, of reading the Trinity into the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. Um, essentially engaging in a, a form of eisegesis or, um, yeah, yeah. you know, how, how much you respond to something like that? So, uh, you know, the first place to start is that the Bible is monotheistic, but it is not Unitarian. So mm-hmm. Unitarian being the view that God is one and God is one person. Mm-hmm. We believe that the Bible is monotheistic, God is one, but it's Trinitarian that God is three persons. And yeah. that, of course, um, to a Jewish person, you know, uh, that doesn't sound like anything. It sounds like you were saying semantics or made up stuff, yeah. but, but we have mm-hmm. to recognize that there's a difference between essence and person. I mean, d- definitionally, mm-hmm. those are two different words with two different meanings. And the presentation in Scripture, even confined to the Hebrew Scripture, is that God is one in essence, yet plural in persons. And mm-hmm. um, the first book of the Bible that was written was likely Job. 
uh, chronologically mm-hmm. speaking. And Job says in Job 33, I think, something like that, he says, the spirit of the Lord God made me. Mm-hmm. Now, the only one who has creative power and authority is God himself. And it doesn't say God himself. It says the spirit of the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. And you look at uh, passages like Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, Psalm 45 also is another uh, key one. And we see this kind of teased out and not teased out. That's what you do with girl's hair. You see it unpacked <laughs> in uh, uh, the book of Hebrews. In uh, Psalm 45, verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Uh, Mm -hmm. you see that language in there and there's something going on where it's not Unitarian as far as one person, but there are, uh, there's a plurality of persons, even in the Hebrew scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. And, and with your statement earlier as well, um, that it's, it's not your position that one needs to, you know, completely understand the Trinity or articulate fully the Trinity in order to sufficiently you know, have a, have a understanding or a saving belief uh, of the gospel. Um, Would you consider there to be like a distinct difference then uh, between contemporary Jews and ancient Jews, right? Where it would be your, uh, I I guess, from what you've said, you know, individuals such as Moses, Abraham, and others uh, might've had, you know, uh, an implicit understanding of Mm -hmm. uh, the plurality of persons. uh, But, you know, present Jews, you know, because they have Christians to dialogue with Mm -hmm. in hearing the plurality of persons would disagree with that, or, you know, would say, I don't understand the personhood of God in the same way that you do. So, um, like ontologically, do you consider modern Jews to perhaps worship a different God, uh, than, um, you know, contemporary Christians? And, you know, is that also not the case with, uh, ancient Jews? Um, Yeah, for anybody who rejects now on this side of the incarnation, anybody who rejects that Jesus was God in flesh, we have to say fundamentally that those people worship a different God. Okay. And um, yeah, I mean, you take the Jews of Jesus day, for instance, we see their understanding of the ontology of God when Mm -hmm. um, in John 10, they pick up stones because they thought he was making himself out, out equal to be God which I believe that's what he was, what he was doing, or he made himself to be equal with God is how I should Mm -hmm. phrase that. And uh, so they, they thought, okay, well, that's blasphemy. Um, No man can be God. God can't take on, you know, flesh. This guy can't be God himself before Abraham was, I am John eight 58. When he identified with the Tetragrammaton, the the name Mm -hmm. Yahweh, that was blasphemy in their eyes. And so they, those Jews certainly, did not see it possible that at least Jesus standing in front of them could be a person of the Godhead. And of course, Jews today are Jewish um, religiously because they also reject that Jesus could have been God. And uh, yeah, so to say, okay, now would Abraham, Moses, and David, if they were alive in Jesus's day, would they have submitted to him and followed him like the 12 disciples or would they have picked up stones like the Pharisees? What was their their view on the Trinity that would have allowed them to do this or that. And um, we see that God working in their lives was bringing about anything good that they did. Therefore um, 
God's grace would have allowed them to be disciples from, from my view. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, going to the example you gave of the Jews that rejected Jesus, right. Um, that group, would you consider them to be, uh, you know, uh, I guess, uh, like correct representatives of the Jewish religion at the time and prior, or were the Jews that accepted Jesus, uh, such as his disciples, uh, were they the ones actually espousing a, you know, a, a quote unquote true Judaism because they, you know, let, um, they didn't reject the idea that God would come to them in human form. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, we see, if you take the whole of Israel's history, Never, ever was there a, a true majority who really had it all figured out and was devoted yeah. to God, right? Mm -hmm. And even, even the ones that we look at who seem to really do well and to get it and were committed, like those guys you mentioned, Abraham, uh, uh, Moses, and David, they weren't great people. Uh, two of them were murderers. 66% mm -hmm. <laughs> of them were, were murderers. And so uh, what we have to recognize is that God was really just carrying along a remnant. Uh, as Paul said, not all Israel is of Israel. And you look at what Jesus mm -hmm. said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, when he just put them on blast, they did not get it. They were not accurate representatives of true Israelite theology. Uh, they mm -hmm. didn't understand the way they should understand. And uh, who did uh, in all of Israel's history? And we, mm -hmm. I don't think I would have done any better. Uh, it was all mm -hmm. up to God doing all the work, which is why he, he had to come in the flesh to do all the work for us, not just in salvation, but in our understanding that we would rely on him in our understanding of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, that, that's all the questions that I have for that, that section. I appreciate your responses. Um, and I think this next question, also the final question um, or, or topic, right? Uh, should kind of bring us full circle because mm -hmm. I think your response to question, you know, the, the first subject uh, will be very relevant here yeah. too. Um, but my, you know, the, the, my kind of overarching question is uh, what are your thoughts on the documentary hypothesis and the varying theological worldviews uh, that its textual traditions seem to espouse? So beyond di just differences in use of the divine name, uh, so, uh, you know, for those who might not be familiar, the documentary hypothesis um, has its origin in kind of a, um, what's referred to as like higher criticism of the Bible, um, a historical development uh, around the, the 19th century. Um, the documentary hypothesis was really um, initially popularized um, uh, by an individual of the last name of Wellhausen forget his last name. Was it William Wellhausen or something? Mm. Um, anyways, first name, not important, but Wellhausen, uh, you know, that, that's uh, the important name there um, that, you know, breaks essentially the Hebrew Bible into four kind of distinct schools or traditions, um, J, E, P, and D. Um, and these letters referred to these schools, the, the J being the Yahwist school, uh, the J being, you know, for the German uh, uh, way of, of spelling that, uh, like Jehovah, um, e being Elohist, uh, um, P being priestly, and D Deuteronomist. And so these four schools um, have historical origins in different parts of ancient Israel. Um, they carry different theological worldviews. Um, and in the text of the Hebrew Bible, 
um, it's the view of the documentary hypothesis that we can segment the the Hebrew Bible, the text, um, into uh, these different camps, and that some of these camps uh, redacted earlier texts, um, such as the Deuteronomists, redacted earlier uh, texts coming from these other schools in order to reflect their theology or, or you know, inject their theology into them. Um, so with these schools, like the Yahweh school, for instance, um, the argument is that uh, there you have uh, a view of God that's corporeal and highly anthropomorphic um, and also favors the, the use of Yahweh as the divine name. Um, there's differences in the other schools as well. Um, but, uh, you know, what do you make of kind of this, this historical phenomenon, this, um, you know, view that is popularized, uh, I'd say, in secular biblical studies? Um, it's held also by, you know, some Jews and some Christians, um, and uh, there's various articulations of it. It's, um, it, it's since become less popular. Um, there's not a complete consensus, but at least for many biblical scholars, um, who don't have your same theological commitments, um, they would see the Bible as an evolving text, which was later redacted by uh, individuals with different points of views, um, and that uh, there's different uh, historical critical methods that we can use to discern, you know, what texts come from which schools and what worldviews they might represent. Um, so wh what do you kind of ma make of the documentary hypothesis, and uh, how, how do you approach it? So it's Julius Wilhausen. I just looked. Yeah, there we go. Awesome. <laughs> and Thank uh, you. yeah, Bauer and Boltman are the other two big names mm -hmm. with, with that. But and now uh, you know Bart Bart Ehrman too would be a big mm -hmm. name, a contemporary. But um, I think yeah, so. of course I uh, I reject the JEPD theory quite fully, and I learned that JEDP. Oh, okay. I, a PD? I, um, I I've seen it as PD in some places. I I, okay. I think there might be some some variability there always throws me off because i think most places do pd like you do i don't yeah. know why i learned it the other way <laughs> but um anyway uh so you know kind of besides the fact that i don't believe there's really been any historical documentation that that proves the theory it's more of a um kind of a summation of looking back at history and kind of piecing together from a different pre-commitment um you know, I would say, look, the, the majority, their starting point is a rejection of the possibility of God revealing himself to man in such a way that we can understand it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you, you know, the, let alone his preservation of the text. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they start from a position that there are no miracles. Many of them do. And so this is just purely a man-made book. Um, and but beyond that, and I think more convincingly is we look at Jesus's view of the old Testament and the apostles view of the old Testament that doesn't line up with this theory at all. Uh, when Jesus made reference to Moses, he was making reference to the writings of Moses. Uh, that's what he taught is that Moses wrote those things. And, um, you know, that's critical in my view of it. I would also say that the depictions of God are not differing or in opposition but mm -hmm. instead are complementary within a Trinitarian worldview. So there are some appearances of God where he is totally formless, and that makes sense. Uh, we don't believe that God is a man. We don't believe God has a body, but ontologically he is immaterial. So that mm -hmm. makes sense. And then God, when he appears to reveal himself in human-like form, we see that 
as a foreshadowing of the incarnation of Christ, the person mm-hmm. of Christ who was to come and take on flesh and walk among us. And we see that as being complementary. Um, it's also important to recognize within the Pentateuch, the historical progression that exists, because of course this theory just focuses on, um, or mainly focuses on, I guess, the Pentateuch, the JEPD theory. And in Exodus, you have Moses writing down the events he experienced, and then he goes on to write down what he said to the Israelites. Uh, and then you get to Deuteronomy, and he is giving sermons to those to the children of the Exodus Israelites. So there's a, a large historical progression going on of decades. And mm-hmm. Mo- you have Moses experiencing things, and we read it as a narr- narrative. Then you have Moses proclaiming things, some of which he experienced, but he didn't proclaim everything he experienced. And then you have him speaking to the children of the people he preached to the first time. Um, where So the setting's totally different, and the way he approaches talking about experiences is different because of that. And additionally, with all that, we have to consider the different writing styles for the different purposes that he had, where Genesis was historical, talking about the history of those first generations. Uh, Much of Exodus and Deuteronomy is legal in nature. Leviticus details the sacrificial system that had a very different purpose, and it makes sense for him to take on a a different uh, writing style when talking about vastly different subjects in the same way that Paul didn't speak exactly the same way to the Philippians that he did to the Galatians. His emphasis was different. His approach was different. His tone was different. Uh, I see a lot of those same things going on. Like uh, the way Jesus spoke to those Pharisees was not the same as when he spoke to the woman at the well, you could take those Mm -hmm. two things, those two dialogues in a, uh, vacuum and say, well, that's not the same person, but uh, there was a different context and a different style because of that different context. So I think that probably wraps up my initial thoughts on that. Okay. Um, let me just get my thoughts together. Um, is J- JEPD is, is limited to the Pentateuch. Is that right? Um, yes, mainly, um, but there are other texts that go outside of the Pentateuch, uh, which, you know, they might say, uh, quite a few of them are influenced by the Deuteronomist school, uh, like first and second Samuel, um, uh, different parts Josh, of the, Josh one judges uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, where, where the argument of, uh, the documentary hypothesis is like, there's these different schools that take place at different, you know, geographic or, or chronological periods in Israelite history. Uh, the latest of which I, I believe is the Deuteronomist school, which uh, the argument is that it redacts the, the previous material in different places. Gotcha. So um, yeah, I, I do, I do think that a lot of texts uh, would be categorized or defined by espousing like a Deuteronomist uh, worldview. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And the view is that uh, that that uh, school uh, gained that kind of uh, dominance or influence over the other texts um, during uh, the time of King Josiah, uh, where he rediscovers the the book of the law of the Lord. And uh, the argument is that uh, this is uh, an expressly like Deuteronomist uh, text. Um, and that, you know, because he then institutes religious reforms throughout uh, Israel, um, that that school gained favor and kind of like a, a, a monarchical 
uh, stamp of approval and and yeah, gotcha. that, that was kind of like the pivotal moment there. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I, I think this, this comes back to my earlier comment though about, uh, and, and again, I'm very glad that you're very aware and forthright about starting points um, mm -hmm. and how much they can influence uh, how we understand and engage these texts. Um, because, right, uh, the, the starting point with the documentary hypothesis, again, is that, uh, you know, we not only is the Bible not, uh, let me put it this way, that different parts of the Bible are in internal contradiction with itself and that that mm -hmm. is a legitimate possibility, uh, which is historically demonstrable, right? Mm -hmm. um, and textually demonstrable as well. And so I guess, um, would you affirm uh, that in order to demonstrate, uh, quote unquote, demonstrate internal contradictions within the Bible, uh, that you that one would have to um, jettison a presupposition that the Bible is internally uh, um, self, you know, uh, internally consistent with itself. Yeah, I um, mean, if, yes, it, it seems it like does. that would logically follow. Yeah, if you're going to start with, if you're going to start with the view that the Bible isn't has been inspired and preserved, then it therefore precludes the possibility that it can be uh, flawed. Now, mm -hmm. of course, this is a really large conversation and it has to yeah. do with original manuscripts versus translations and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's quite possible that someone could say uh, that there are, uh, there are flaws in the English translation of the Bible, whatever translation that person might happen to be using, like uh, a King James, they turn to first John five, seven and say, look, this isn't, uh, original that shouldn't be in there and I could agree with that person and by doing that I am not forfeiting the view of inspiration and preservation in scripture it's a recognition that yeah we know from history that Erasmus um, had that verse added that it's called the comma Johinium and, yeah yeah and that verse was added in there it's not original all right so mm -hmm. we can we can 99 percent be sure of that but if we're going to take the view that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses, but it was written by different schools that piece things together. Now we have really, really, really big problems that extend well beyond just one verse or one passage, but really affects the whole Bible, particularly getting to the teachings of Jesus. And you kind of have to conclude that either Jesus was wrong or he knew what was right and was just kind of misleading the people by teaching them that it was Moses who wrote it. Mm -hmm. So, like, when we take the the presupposition that the Bible is internally consistent, that, you know, not only was God capable of preserving his word, um, you know, but uh, did preserve it and that uh, the, the, the biblical text is understandable, right? Um, if we took the inverse of that, um, I, I guess, so I'm trying to strike it like what I see for me personally as, as you know, an, an issue with the, the presuppositions here. So for me, the, the way I see it, and, you know, I welcome your commentary after I explain this, but so on the one hand, we have the presupposition that uh, scripture is internally consistent, uh, that it is, you know, preserved, um, that it does not internally contradict itself. 
um, that the theology is is consistent or you know consistent within your framework of progressive uh, revelation. Um, and so, like you like you said earlier, um, if we have that view of scripture that it is not internally uh, or or even cannot be self contradictory, um, then it seems to me that nothing that one would present right uh, could um, you know dispute that or demonstrate otherwise um, because it would require a jettisoning of the presupposition there. So for me, I see the presupposition that, you know, scripture is internally consistent, leading you to the conclusion, right, in all cases that scripture is internally consistent. Whereas if one were to assume the inverse, uh, that scripture may be internally consistent, but also may not be, to me, that seems to, you know, leave open the possibility that, yes, if scripture is internally consistent, then, you know, it, we should be able to reasonably establish that through exegesis and through reading the text. Um, but it also leaves open the possibility that it might not be consistent, right? And so I see at least, you know, two two conclusions there, uh, that if scripture is consistent, it should be able to demonstrate its consistency. Um, but if not, then we should be able to demonstrate that it's not consistent. Whereas yeah. with the other presupposition, it seems like the only possible conclusion is that it's consistent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I'm viewing it in my mind right now. I'm happy for you to pick that apart or comment on it or respond to it. Uh, however you see appropriate. Yeah. What would you, what would you say to, cause I, yeah, I totally am tracking with you. And I think that's a very valuable thing to bring up and, and talk about. Yeah. So, so if you start with the pre-commitment that it is the word of God and it cannot be flawed, then it can never be shown in any way to be inconsistent or flawed yeah. in any way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if you start from the position of, it, it might be flawed. Now it can mm. never be authoritative and you must always be authoritative over it. Is mm. that right? Yeah. It, it, it seems like that would require uh, an individual to make the call of whether or not it is internally, you know, consistent, right? Because uh, it would require us to either compare passages against each other to draw from history, you know, or other texts uh, that are outside of the Bible to interpret the Bible, right? Um, I, I think earlier uh, you talked to uh, or, 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 you know, re- mentioned the various, you know, interpretive possibilities that are then possible at that point, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then, uh, yeah, it, it seems like there's a multitude of different conclusions that we can mm-hmm. reach, right? So, um, and, and I do understand the, the issue with that. Um, we, we lose... Um, you know, uh, a degree of, of confidence, I'd say, in the text and, and uh, the absolute message that it is communicating, right? Because well, now... And, and not only that, you also lose the authority that it has to say something to you and to direct your thinking on something because it is only authoritative insofar as you affirm it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I I have gotten this in conversations with uh, different uh, small o orthodox Christians uh, who, you know, do take uh, an inerrantist, infallible view of scripture that is, it's all self-sufficient, right? Um, Where in talking to them, not just myself, but it's clear from the the diversity of uh, various scholars, people from different worldviews, 
there's a lot of different ways to consider the Bible. And I've seen in different Christian denominations too, if that uh, view of inerrancy or infallibility is, you know, decreased or, you know, modified in some way as to make, you know, these interpretive possibilities uh, uh, more open. Um, yeah, it, it seems like there's a, there's a very wide array of, of conclusions that, that one can reach. And um, there's a lot, the gray area gets expanded um, because you mentioned previously that, you know, even within the evangelical world, let's say individuals that do, you know, take a, a view of scripture that is very high, that it's self-sufficient, inerrant, infallible, um, that, you know, there's still, there, there, evangelicals are not a monolith, right? Right. Um, yeah. So there's still interpretive possibilities um, that are possible there. Um, but I, I'd say the range and the, the, the kind of disagreements are much more restricted, um, you know, on perhaps various dif more difficult passages or, you know, uh, secondary and tertiary issues mm -hmm. as well, let's say. So, yeah, um, I, I completely see um, how that can be, um, I guess, not just daunting, um, but uh, problematic, mm -hmm. too, um, to an extent. Um, at least from your position. Um, so do you see uh, there's, but on the flip side, I think there's various Christians who um, let's say like Peter ends or Michael Heiser or, you know, individuals who I don't even know if they would identify as quote unquote, like progressive Christians. Right. But they're certainly I bet more I bet Peter ends would. I, I don't think yeah, Heiser yeah. would. Yeah. But you know, uh, let's just say they're certainly more, you know, uh, closer to the middle of the spectrum mm -hmm. than, you know, evangelicals, most evangelicals uh, would identify. So, um, but they seem to be able to, to make a uh, sense of, of Christianity to, you know, at least from their own claims, uh, espouse a, a Christian worldview and uh, still, they don't reject the Bible outright. They consider it to be something that uh, guides their life. They consider themselves to be believers in Jesus Christ. So, um, is this also an area that you, you would see as uh, um, uh, dangerous to soften on? Or is it something that, you know, decides who is and is not orthodox, right? Yeah, because um, basically what goes hand in hand with a liberal view of or progressive view of the Old Testament is evolutionary theory. Um, mm -hmm. I I don't know of anybody who holds to like JEPD, for example, and is still a the uh, creationist, theistic, uh, six day yeah, creation yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. So I think I'd agree with you there. They go they go hand in hand, and there are um, lots and lots of dangers. I, I wrote an article for my website. Uh, let's see, when was this published? June of sixteen, um, called Twenty Questions for the Theistic Evolutionist." And it goes hand in hand with the view of, of the Old Testament, like we're talking about. And so I ask questions like, um, let's see, when, what did Jesus mean when he cited Genesis 1 saying, from the beginning, God made them male and female? Um, what did Jesus mean when he talked about believing the writings of Moses? What did Abraham mean in Luke 16 when he said that men should hear Moses? Um, and yeah, I guess this is pretty evolutionary. I'm skipping over a lot of the questions. Um, you know, how could Adam be called the first man? 
in first Corinthians 15, if, you know, Genesis was kind of thrown together later by a, mm-hmm. a group of people who had a different view. Um, and so, yeah, there, there are a lot of theologies that are directly impacted by a progressive view of the old Testament. And mm-hmm. I'd say this is, uh, this seems to be a, a primary, a primary issue here, not a secondary mm-hmm. issue because, yeah. um, scripture can never be authoritative or sufficient if it was not, um, what it says it is basically, mm-hmm. uh, or what mm-hmm. Jesus affirmed it to be. Mm. Yeah. And I, I'd be interested, um, talking more about that in, uh, you know, future conversations too, mm. because this, this is an area where, yes, you know, I, I think I'd be right with you, right. Where, if we are presupposing an evangelical worldview, um, some of the different issues that I've raised are uh, not just problematic, right? But they open up to a whole range of, of issues. And so, um, at least for me as a religious outsider here, um, you know, for uh, an individual who identifies as a Christian to, you know, affirm uh, monolatry, affirm the documentary hypothesis, you know, evolution, I'd, I'd agree. It seems like, you know, once once that happens, uh, it is rare, if not, you know, impossible for a whole host of other things Mm -hmm. to not, you know, uh, follow as a result. Um, And even though there are Christians uh, who, you know, whether they identify as progressive Christians or, um, you know, reconcile their faith in different ways, um, you know, most of them just aren't single issue, you know, it's not a single thing, right? Um, So, this is an area where I, I do agree that uh, these can be problematic to an evangelical worldview. Um, and this is also an area where, you know, in the future I can talk about this more, but uh, where I see Mormonism as a theological system, being able to reconcile and respond to these um, in a more robust way or um, be, because I, I think, I think the, uh, and you might agree with me here that, you know, with these different issues, um, the evolution, monolatry, documentary hypothesis, um, I think evangelical Christianity has to retrench itself against them or, you know, or reject them, right, mm-hmm. um, in order to sustain itself. Um, I see those things as uh, being something that are compatible within a Mormon worldview. I'm comfortable talking about that more in the future if we ever want to, but um yeah, for me, for me, these and, and some other areas, um, uh, it, it's hard for me to directly compare the, theologies against each other as in like, you know, Mormonism is better than evangelical Christianity because, you know, it can accept these things and doesn't have to reject them. Um, but I at least see um, more room uh, for compatibility within Mormonism. And I think it's because of its several of its theological uh commitments or or assumptions about revelation about scripture about god and about how god speaks to humanity um so anyways uh you know i i appreciate your responses i think we're about at the the hour mark or so Mm -hmm. um but uh, i i enjoyed the conversation and and look forward to your questions in the future as Mm -hmm. well yeah yeah look forward to the next one and uh so we'll go ahead and sign off for this do we call them episodes yeah, uh, interviews, episodes, 
you know, Since they're gonna be three whatever you want, I guess. Ish, we should, yeah, I guess we could say episodes. So, yeah, we thanks could call for them watching. Per- persons, we could call them persons oh, as well. <laughs> so, episodes. Uh, so, for uh, those of you who, who watch, too, we hope this was a great benefit to you and encourage you to interact somehow. Leave a comment somewhere because it would be great to have a wrap-up episode where we can draw out some of those questions and answer those knowing you know, what's most important to you as far as uh, information, because we've talked about a whole host of things and maybe just a couple of things really piqued your interest. Ask us more about those and we can, we can discuss those in more detail. So mm-hmm. till Perfect. next time. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate it. Yeah.